Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. If you're new today, we're doing a study on the book of Joshua. We've titled it New Normal, and we're learning lessons about what it takes not only to visit the land of blessing. A lot of people visit periodically the land of God's blessing. They just don't live there. Why? Why is it that some people know the blessed life, other people don't? Is it because God has favorites? No. God is no respecter of persons. He'll do for one what he's done for another. But there are principles. There are things we have to know. There are things we have to apply to our life. We have a decision. We have a choice. Whether we're going to position ourselves in a way where we can experience God's best and God's blessing in our life like we've never known it before. Every one of us has a choice. Will we do the things that lead to victory? Will we do the things that lead to blessing? Or will we do the things that cause us to know periodic defeat and periodic blessing or maybe defeat continually? came across this quote probably a couple months ago. I've thought a lot about it. It says, we were born looking like our parents, but we die looking like our decisions. We were born looking like our mom and dad. We die looking like our choices. Everybody has choices that we can make. Life is filled with choices. We choose from the minute we get up in the morning how we're going to think, what we're going to say, how we're going to live, what we're going to prioritize in our life. We choose whether we're going to honor God or not honor God. We choose. That's why in Deuteronomy, the Lord says this, and throughout this chapter, he talks about the choice. So this is just a couple of the verses. Now listen, this is the Lord speaking. Today I'm giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. Oh, that you would choose life. We make a choice. We can choose between life and death. We can choose between prosperity and disaster. And when you come to Joshua chapter 7, we meet a man who made a choice. It was a devastating choice. Now, as we prepare to look at Joshua 7, really the setup for it is in Joshua chapter 6. Let's pick up where we left off last time. In Joshua 6 and verse 16, remember the uh, army of Israel and the priests and the Ark of the Covenant, they're going around the city. They've done it one time each day for six days. On the seventh day, they're going around it seven times. On the seventh time, they give a shout. God says, when you shout, the walls will collapse. It's exactly what happened. The seventh time around, as the priests sounded the long blast on their horns, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the town. Jericho and everything in it must be completely destroyed as an offering to the Lord. Do not take any of the things set apart for destruction, or you yourselves will be completely destroyed, and you will bring trouble on the camp of Israel. Everything made from silver, gold, bronze, or iron is sacred to the Lord and must be brought into the treasury. 
Now the question arises as they're going in to take the land and as God has given them the land. If God has given them the land and God has given them the city, then why do they have to give everything back to him? What it does is it explains and literally illustrates a principle that you find throughout scripture. And I'm gonna call the principle this, it's the principle or the law of first things. It's found throughout the Bible and it is a significant key to experiencing the blessing of God in our lives. It's based on this fact, everything comes from where? God. Everything you own, everything you wear, everything you eat, everything you drive, the job that you have, everything comes from God. Person might hear that and say, well, no, wait a minute. I worked for it. I made good decisions. But the fact of the matter is God not only gave you everything that you have, but God gave you the strength to do what you did to get it. He gave you the creativity. He gave you the opportunity. He gave you the ability. God gives us everything. And the proof of that is when we're born, we come into the world without anything. And when we die, we leave without taking anything with us. As one man said, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You cannot take it with you. The law of first things has two corollaries, two components to it. The first is this, the first part of all that God gives us is to be given back to him. So God gives us, it's all God's, and God says, listen, I'm gonna give you a part of what is mine for you to manage. And as an acknowledgement that it isn't yours in the first place, as an acknowledgement that it's all mine and you're simply managing it for me in a spirit of worship, in a spirit of thanksgiving, in a spirit of generosity, I'm asking you to give me 10% back the tithe. I'm asking you to give it back. And God, what he'll do is, God says, and when you do that, I'm gonna bless you so much for giving that 10% that you'll have more with the 90% than you would have had if you'd have kept the 100%. So that doesn't make any sense because if you have 90%, that's less than 100%. And so it doesn't make sense to the natural mind, but it is a supernatural principle. And I've seen it over and over again as God has used it in the lives of people and in my own life to do what doesn't make sense, to make it happen. And it leads to blessing because the fact of, of the matter is this, God will never owe a man or a woman anything. He's the gracious giver of all good things. And when we give, he blesses back over and above. And we found it didn't hurt to give at all, but actually we ended up with more. It's the law of first things. It's the principle of first things. But all of it belongs to God. And he asks us to give him the first fruits, the first 10%, the tithe back. For example, in Leviticus chapter 27, one-tenth of the produce of the land, whether grain from the fields or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. Whose is it? It's God's. Doesn't matter who owns the field, humanly speaking, or who owns the flock, it's God's. And must be set apart to him as holy. That means holy means separated. It's unto him. It's for him. 
In Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10, bring the whole tithe, the whole 10% into the storehouse. That's the place where you worship. So you don't take your tithe and say, well, I'm going to give a little over here, a little over there. I'm going to use it for this, that. No, you have offerings you can give wherever you want, but the tithe goes to the place where you worship. That there might be food in my house, test me in this, says the Lord. One of the few times God says, go ahead and put it to the test. He knows how hard it is for people to let go of money. So God says, listen, test me and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you'll not have enough room for it. You see this all over. I mean, Exodus chapter 34, verse 19, the first offspring of every room of womb belongs to me. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 26, the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. In the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats bursting with wine. This is Solomon saying, listen, I've looked around and I've watched, and this is the way life plays, that when people give to God, God gives back to them over and above what they ever gave to him and blesses them. I know that there are people who will say, well, you know, you quote all those Old Testament scriptures because tithing isn't found in the New Testament. That's not true. People say, you know, Jesus, now we're under grace. So Jesus, we don't, we don't tithe. That's just not true. In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23, Jesus speaking here, talking to the Pharisees, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of law, justice, of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. So justice and mercy and faith, those are weightier issues, but that doesn't mean that we don't need to tithe. In our, in our life, you know, I don't sit and think all week about tithing. I write the check, but I should be thinking about mercy, and I should be thinking about faith, and I should be thinking about justice. Are you with me? That's the way that plays in that scripture. There's a second corollary to the, to the principle of first things. What we do with the first part determines what happens to the rest. What we do with the first part determines what happens to the rest. In fact, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 20, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. What that's saying is better, better off not to take what belongs to God than to keep what is God's for yourself. Better never to have it. On the other hand, if you give God what belongs to him, then he is going to bless you, as we saw in those other scriptures. Now back to Joshua chapter 6. Why does God tell them, listen, Jericho, you can't keep anything. Everything in Jericho belongs to me. Because as they're coming into the land, what is the first city? Jericho. And God is saying, the first part belongs to me. It's mine. Give it to me. And what you do with the first part determines what happens to the rest. That's the lesson primarily of Joshua chapter 7, that if they honor God by giving him the first part, they're going to be undefeated. If they don't honor God, then it's not going to go well for them. It's a lesson in all of life. 
What you and I do with the first part determines what happens to the rest. They're gonna get every other city, all of the wealth of those cities, it's all gonna belong to them. But God says, I want you to give me the first part as an act of worship, as an act of devotion, as an act of obedience, as an act of honor. You do that and I will bless you like you can't begin to imagine. With that as a backdrop, Let's look at Joshua chapter seven. But Israel violated the instructions about things set apart for the Lord. A man named Achan had stolen some of these dedicated things. So the Lord was very angry with the Israelites. Achan was the son of Carmi, a descendant of Zimri, a son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah. Joshua sent some of his men from Jericho to spy out the town of Ai, east of Bethel, near Beth-Avon. When they returned, they told Joshua, there's no need for all of us to go up there. It won't take more than two or 3,000 men to attack Ai. Since there are so few of them, don't make all our people struggle to go up there. So approximately 3,000 warriors were sent, but they were soundly defeated. The men of Ai chased the Israelites from the town gate as far as the quarries, and they killed about 36 who were retreating down the slope. The Israelites were paralyzed with fear at this turn of events, and their courage melted away. Joshua and the elders of Israel tore their clothing in dismay, threw dust on their heads, and bowed face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening. Then Joshua cried out, O sovereign Lord, why did you bring us across the Jordan River if you're going to let the Amorites kill us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side. Verse 10. But the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why are you lying on your face like this? Israel has sinned and broken my covenant. They have stolen some of the things that I commanded must be set apart from me. If we take what belongs to God, it's stealing. I know most people don't like to think that, and I'm not trying to be mean or nasty or vindictive. And let me just say this. I'm not telling you this because we need money. I'm telling you this because over the years of serving as a pastor in multiple congregations, it has been amazing to watch. I mean, in my own life, uh, I've seen it over and over again. It's just true, true, true. I've said before, if I weren't a Christian, I'd still tithe. It's a principle. It's, it's like the law of gravity. If I jump off, I'm going down. If I tithe, God's gonna bless. It's just, it's, it's a law that's woven in to the universe. People say, well, I don't think it's stealing. Well, you know, Malachi would say this, Malachi 3 verse eight, will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? That's God speaking. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there might be food in my house. Test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not, that there will not be room enough to store it. Listen, all I'm saying is this. I have watched people be blessed when they stepped out. It doesn't make sense. I realize it's a hard decision. I realize it's a big decision. 
I've had numerous conversations where people say, you know, I can't afford to tithe. I don't know how we'd ever do that. Only to step out in faith and to do that and to have God go before them in ways that are absolutely unbelievable. Brandon, you got that card uh, that you read. It's just such a great card. I mean, here it is. My wife and I have been struggling to make ends meet recently. We knew that something needed to change if we were going to make it. So they don't have enough. They, they know they've got to change, although it didn't make sense naturally. This is the thing. Tithing's never going to make sense naturally. How can you have more with 90 than you'd have with 100? doesn't make sense, but it's a, it's a spiritual principle that is true. We decided to start tithing. How can you tithe if you don't have money to tithe? Ask them. This, I mean, a great story. Ask anybody who's ever taken that step. The week after we began tithing, I received a promotion and raise at work. We're praising God for his faithfulness. I'm just telling you, there is, there's a blessing that comes. That being said, back to Joshua chapter 7, and they have not only stolen them, but they've lied about it, hidden the things among their own belongings. That is why the Israelites are running from their enemies in defeat. For now, Israel itself has been set apart for destruction. I will not remain with you any longer unless you destroy the things among you that were set apart for destruction. One of the things that's very interesting as you read those first several verses of Joshua is that you have Joshua going into battle, and remember back when they were getting ready to attack Jericho, the first city, what was Joshua doing? He was looking at the city, and he was praying, and the commander of the Lord's armies, uh, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, appears to him and gives him instructions. Okay, here's how you're going to take the city, but this time it's AI. This time he, gets, he sends men to go look it over, and they come back and they say, let's not send everybody. There's no need to do that. This is a slam dunk. This is a no-brainer. I mean, come on. This is going to be so easy. We'll just send two or three thousand maybe. They'll go up there and we'll take the city. But Joshua's not praying. He's not seeking God. And there's a massive lesson in that for all of us. One of the things that gets all of us into trouble is when we don't think we need the Lord's help, when we think we got it all under control, so we don't pray. We think the situation we're dealing with is easy. We think it's a no-brainer. We think it's not a big deal, so we don't think we have to pray. Listen, Joshua prays over Jericho, and God gives him a big victory. But as they turn to Ai, there's no praying, and the result is defeat. I mean, look at it again. Joshua sent some of his men from Jericho to spy out the town of Ai. When they returned, they told Joshua, there's no need for all of us to go up there. It won't take more than two or 3,000. Since there are so few of them, so many of us, don't make all our people struggle to go up there. Here's why we need to pray. Because you and I, we need God's help in every single situation. We need his help in the situations where we really know we need his help. We need his help in the situations where we don't even think we need his help. The reason why we need to pray is because there are things you and I don't know 
about what's in store. It could look very easy. It could look like it's all coming together. But there's things you and I can't see with our eyes physically. There's things you and I can't hear with our ears physically. There are things you and I can't know in our mind physically. And that's why we need God to speak to us. And we're not going to have God speaking to us if we're not spending time with him, if we're not seeking him, if we're not asking him to go before us. How different it would have been if Joshua would have said, God, we just defeated Jericho, but I don't take anything for granted. God, we're going to AI. It looks like it's going to be a slam dunk. It looks like it's going to be easy, but God, I need your help. I need you to show me. Are we ready? Is there something we need to do? Do you have a different plan? Tell me, show me, help me. And the Lord would have said, I can't go with you because there are some things that are wrong. He doesn't seek the Lord, and they are defeated. What's very interesting in this, as soon as Joshua starts to pray after a defeat, God answers him. Why? Because God answers prayer. But I can't help but thinking, how much better to pray preventively? How much better to pray before you're defeated than to walk through a defeat and have to pick yourself up after it? How many times do people put up with fear and anxiety and struggle unnecessarily, all because they didn't pray? Look at it, verse 10. But the Lord said to Joshua, get up, why are you lying on your face like this? Israel sinned and broken my covenant. They've stolen some of the things that I've commanded to be set apart for me. And they've not only stolen them, but have lied about it and hidden the things among their own belongings. As soon as he prays, God tells him, here's what you're going to need to do if you're going to know victory. As soon as you and I pray, God is going to speak to your heart. God is going to show you things. God's going to go before you in ways you and I can't even see, where he's going to take the rough ways, the rough places, and make them smooth, where he's going to crush the mountains down, where he's going to lift up the valleys, where he's going to create a highway for you and I to travel on, if we pray. But if we don't pray... We're on our own. That's why it's so important to seek the Lord. Well, we've seen the principle of first things. We've seen the problem with not praying. Number three, the process of coveting. The process of coveting. We don't talk much about coveting. You don't know when you probably last heard a sermon on it, although coveting the prohibition on coveting is the 10th commandment, thou shall not covet. What's interesting is of the 10 commandments, I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, it's the only commandment that regulates thought and thinking. It's the only one that deals with our thoughts. In fact, of the 613 commands that are found in the first, first five books of the, of the Bible, this is the only one that deals with our thinking. In the New Testament, the, there's a Greek word that is translated, depending on the context, either as lust or as coveting. So you could think of coveting this way. Coveting, in a New Testament sense, is to greatly desire to have or to do something. But for our purposes, I'd like to define coveting this way. Coveting is to desire 
to the point of seeking to take away and own something that belongs to another. Coveting is to desire to the point of seeking to take away and to own something that which belongs to another. There's two factors in seeking to own and it belongs to somebody else. What's interesting when you look at the Ten Commandments, coveting the Tenth Commandment, if you don't covet or, or when people do covet, I guess I should say, it leads to adultery. It can lead to stealing. You want what somebody else has, so you take it. It can lead to lying so that you're going to try to cover your tracks. It can lead, in some cases, to murder. And the reason why I want to take just a moment to talk about it is we don't talk often about it, but it is absolutely massive for every, every follower of Christ to give consideration to because coveting can lead people down into all different kinds of sins. What, what we think is important, the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So this is critical. Achan's problem didn't start when he stole. His problem started when he coveted. And his coveting caused him to steal. Look at it, Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. But Israel violated the instructions about the things set apart for the Lord. A man named Achan had stolen some of these dedicated things. What happens is now the armies are defeated, and so Joshua goes before the Lord and says, what is happening? And God says, well, you have stolen things. And what they would do in that day is they would cast lots. So in the priest's garments, there was the uh, umum and the thumim were the names of it. And most scholars believe they're like two sticks that were used, and they were thrown down. And depending on which one landed on top of the other one would determine whether it was Yes or no. It was a way of singling things out. It was called casting the lots. Lots was not uh, dice and gambling. Casting the lots was a sanctified way of decision-making that the Lord honored in the Old Testament and empowered the high priest to do. So what happens is Joshua says, okay, somebody's got something. So what we're going to do is we're going to have, we're going to have all the tribes, 12 tribes of Israel walk by the leader. So is it the tribe of Judah? They cast lots? No. Or yes, it's them. Every other tribe, not them. Then they take the tribe of Judah and they say, okay, we're going to have the clans pass by. And so as they cast the lots, the clans go by and they find out that it's the clan of Zerah. Then they have the clans of Zerah go by, and they find out it's the clan of Carmi. Then they have the clans of Carmi go by, they find out it's the clan of Zimri. Then they have all of the families in the clan of Zimri go by, and they find out it's Achan. And so Joshua comes to him and says, my son, give glory to the Lord the God of Israel, by telling the truth. Make your confession and tell me what you have done. Don't hide it from me. So we give glory to God when we come clean. You want to glorify God, just come clean. Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. Among the plunder, I saw a beautiful robe from Babylon, 200 silver coins, and a bar of gold weighing more than a pound. I wanted them so much that I took them. 
They are hidden in the ground beneath my tent with the silver buried deeper than the rest. In those verses, what you have is you have the process of coveting. And what I want to do is I want to give you the four steps that are a part of that so we can learn from Achan's sin lest we commit it ourselves. The first step to coveting is he saw it. He saw it. You remember he said, I saw a beautiful robe and I saw 200 shekels of silver and I saw 50 shekels of gold. I, I saw it. That doesn't mean that he noticed it. It doesn't mean that he glanced at it and then went on. No, the word there means that he stared at it, that he gazed at it, that he he looked at it with consideration. In other words, it filled his vision. The first step in coveting is not a passing glance. A first step is when you mark it, when you gaze at it, when you stare at it, when it becomes really all that you see. So it's what you're looking at. It's what you're thinking about. And suddenly, it's what fills your eye. It's what you're watching. This is a dangerous thing. Listen to what Jesus says. And Jesus is talking about wealth. He's talking about money. He's talking about treasure. And oftentimes that's where coveting, people can covet what somebody else has. Jesus says, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. And you're going to see that. And that is a principle on coveting if ever there was. Treasure, desire, your heart, your eye. Very interesting. He goes from money to talking about desire to talking about your eye. Achan saw. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. He's talking in a spiritual sense. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. What do you see? What are you looking at? He's coveting. He's looking at something that's not his, that he wants, that he wants to possess. So coveting can happen in all kinds of ways. You can, you can covet someone else's spouse, someone else's house, someone else's position, someone else's job. You can begin to covet. You can be, it becomes all that you see. It's one of the dangers of social media because it's, it's fantasy land. It's a big fairy tale. Because everybody's putting their best, their best face on for you. They've got the perfect life. They got the perfect house. They got the perfect kids. They got the perfect mate. They got the perfect job. They got the perfect cup of coffee. They got the perfect outfit. They've got the perfect, you know, it's like what in the world? It's not true. And you're watching it, and it's filling your eye. And you're, in, in a sense, you become a voyeur. And you're watching their home, and you're watching their family, and you wish you had him as the husband, or her as, as your wife, or those as your kids, or that job, or that car, or that kitchen, or that outfit. 
Oh, I wish I was, I wish I had their personality. I wish I had their job. And all of a sudden, it fills your eye. Watch this. Now, all of a sudden, the Bible says this. We fix our eyes on what? On Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, the author and the finisher of our faith. Paul says, set your eyes on what? On things above, not on things below. Because when you get your eyes on things around you, what happens is it darkens your soul. Some of you are playing with fire because what you're looking at continually is causing not only dissatisfaction in your life, but it's diminishing your spiritual desire for God. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. Now watch this. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness... How deep is that darkness? How, what are you saying? If you think I'm okay spiritually, but in truth, your eyes are filled with other things. What you think is light is actually very, very deep darkness. He saw it. Second, he weighed it. Now, it doesn't say those words, but it's very clearly implied, look at it. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, which is Babylon, and 200 shekels of silver. How does he know there's 200 shekels? I mean, they're not like in $10 rolls. It's not like there was a, a plastic baggie that said 200 shekels. He sees it. And he starts weighing it out. He starts counting it. And when he counts out the silver, he's like, there's 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. It's a bar of gold. So he is actually sitting there weighing the gold as he finds it. It's very instructive for us. He weighs it. He gives it value. He gives it worth. Do you realize that our word Worship comes from worth. That when you and I worship, what we're doing is we're ascribing to the Lord glory, honor. We're ascribing value to him. We're saying, God, you are the greatest. You are the most exalted. You're worth more than anything, God. That's worship. And whatever we set our heart on to worship, whatever we give value to in our life, whatever we desire, we give authority to in our life. It begins to control us. In, in Mark chapter four, I don't mean to keep taking rabbit trails, but I think this is really important for us to understand how the heart, how the mind, how the soul works. Jesus telling the parable of the, of the sower and the soils talks about a third kind of soil. It's weedy soil. And he, he says, still others like seeds sown among the thorns hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, wealth is deceitful. It's, it's not bad, but it's, it's, it can deceive you. And the desires of other things for other things Come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Think about this. Your desires, what you desire, when you begin to desire something, you give it authority in your life. It now begins to rule. It rules your heart. 
You're desiring somebody else's, whatever it is, their, their job. You're desiring, and it doesn't have to be even the things other people have. It can be other sins you desire. You say like what? It could be like gossip. You know, there, there are some, some and, and you just like to be in the know. You just like to, you like to, you know, you like to know what's going down in the office. And you love it way too much. And so what happens is that begins, that desire for gossip begins to control you. It begins to move in your life in ways you don't even realize. So we could pick you up. We could pop you in a convention in another city of 500 people, and you could spend a week at that convention, and at the end of that week, all of the gossips in that convention would be circulating around you. Why? Be, not because you have a sign on your back that says, I love gossip, come see me if you share that same interest, but because you love gossip, your desire for gossip has an authority over your life, an unseen control over your life that draws other gossips to you. Tell you, what we desire dominates, governs the way you and I live. So here, here he is, he gets in this situation, he's gazing, he's valuing it, he's desiring it. Now, number three, he imagines it. He begins to think about, wouldn't that be nice to have that? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice, what, what could I do with with 200 shekels of silver and, and a gold bar worth 50 shekels. And man, I can't wait till I can wear that new robe at a party. And, and uh, people be like, Where, where'd you get that? Oh, I just went over to Babylon and got it. You know, I mean, that kind of thing going on. He desires it. Be like the person who you're going through. Let's take social media again, because I think that's a gateway for a lot of things that mess people up. So you start desiring that other person. So next thing you know, you're, you're doing whatever you do to try to comment on things, like things. You begin to desire. You, you begin to think, what would it be like to be with them? What would it be like to be with him? What would it be like, you know, what if I had that job? Once you start going there, and you, that's the beginning of all kinds of problems. In fact, one commentator said this, and I thought it was so good. Imagination is the tongue of the soul. You're tasting it. You're experiencing it. You're planning it. You're dreaming about it. So if it's, if it's in terms of adultery, all of a sudden now, you're, you're, you're planning out what a day would be like with that other person instead of with your own mate. You're living an alternative life with whatever it is that you found yourself desiring, whether it's with, and, and it all of a sudden it takes control of you. It consumes you. It's what you've given value to. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. In our members, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire. Listen, desire is a sleeping wolf in the life of every person. Be very, very careful. This is, this is why the psalmist says in Psalm 27, one thing I have desired of the Lord, this is what I'll seek. One thing, that I might dwell in your house and gaze on your, on your beauty, beholding you, that I might inquire of the Lord. What I want, God, is I want one thing. I want my desire to be 
in you. The psalmist knows you can't be harboring a bunch of desires without getting yourself in trouble. Our members, in our members, there's a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. Do you, you know, because some of you, as I was talking about how desire takes authority, you're like, no, it doesn't. Right there it is. What you desire, you empower in your life. What you desire, you allow to rule your life. If I desire the Lord, he rules my life. If I desire, other, if I desire money, it rules my life. If I desire leisure, it rules my life. If I desire pleasure, it rules my life. If I desire fame and fortune, it rules my life. If I desire sensuality, it rules my life. Do you see this? You know it's true. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality. You're not thinking about God. Aiken's not thinking about God. When a person covets, desire is ruling. You're not thinking about God, and only desire for the creature is real. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The powers of clear discrimination and decision are taken from us. You say, what does that mean? You can't think straight anymore. Have you ever talked to somebody who's caught up in an affair, and you're like, Dude, this is, like, this is like the stupidest thing you could be doing. Well, I don't, I, you don't understand. No, I do understand. You're wrecking everybody's life, including your own. Well, I don't really see it that way. There's why. You've lost your ability to think. Desire is running you crazy. He gazed at it. He valued it. He imagined it, he took it. The problem wasn't that he didn't know it was wrong. The problem was he didn't care. He wanted to keep what belonged to God. And when a person covets, then possessions or people or relationships or hobbies or whatever it is become more important than God. And you could say this, coveting not only can lead to perjury, can not only lead to murder, can not only lead to theft, can not only lead to adultery, coveting ultimately leads to idolatry. Where we give something in our life a place only God should have. And you can read the rest of the story and you can see it doesn't go well for Achan or for his family. They are executed. You say, oh my goodness, that's, that's just very harsh. Well, I think it indicates two things to us. The first would be simply, it shows the need for a new covenant. It was, was what happened just? Yes, it was. It was just, but we need grace. Because if God only gives us justice, we're all finished by sundown or sooner. So it speaks of the need for a better covenant, but let me just say this. In the Old Testament, what you see as 
physical stories or realities in the Old Testament speak to spiritual realities in the New Testament. You say, what do you mean? For example, you've got a guy out on the, on the Sabbath in, in um, I, I think it's in Numbers or Deuteronomy, and he's out there and he's picking up sticks on the Sabbath, which he's doing work on the Sabbath. They bring him before the Lord. The Lord says, stone him. You say, uh, breaking the Sabbath? Well, it's one of the Ten Commandments. What it's speaking to is this. It's speaking to the fact in the New Covenant that we're made, we're designed to work one day in seven. And when, when you don't take that day off, you're bringing death into your situation. You're bringing death into your heart, your spirit, your mind, your relationships. You're bringing death into your life. I mean, you could go on and look at other examples, and Achan is an example of that. When we keep what is God's for ourselves, it diminishes life. It works against us. Not only for us, but for our family, for those close to us. I mean, listen, 36 funerals happen because of what Achan did. As we wrap this up, there's a fourth principle that I want to just mention briefly, and it's this, the priority of repentance. The priority of repentance. Repentance isn't saying, oh, I'm sorry. That's not repentance, because people can say they're sorry all day long and never change a thing, and they haven't really repented. There's a lot of people who will tell God sorry today and go back to living the way they lived, they've been living all along. I mean, that, that happens. Repentance is literally the word metanoio means uh, a change of mind. So when Jesus comes and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's saying, change your mind about how you think about the kingdom of heaven, how you think about, change your thinking is the idea. So repentance in a very real sense is, I'm going this way, I'm living life this way, I'm confronted with the word of God that says what I'm doing or not doing is dishonoring to God and it's not what God desires. I need to be doing, I need to stop doing this or need to start doing that. And I say, you know what, God, if your word says it doesn't matter what I think, you're the authority, you're God, I'm not. And whenever I follow you, you bless me. I'm going to repent. I'm going to change my thinking. I'm going to stop doing that or I'm going to start doing that. And I'm going to turn and now I'm going to go this way on that, on that issue. It's a, it's a 180, it's a change of thinking. That's what repentance is. And what happens is, at any point that you and I are confronted with the Word of God, and we say, you know what, if it's in the Word, that's the end of the discussion for me. If it's in the Word, it's in the Word. Hey, straight up, let God be true and every man a liar. God knows best, and here's what God said. When you honor me, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth there, night. Be careful to do it, for when you do, Joshua chapter one, you will have prosperity and success. I'm not telling you everybody's gonna be a multimillionaire, but you're gonna see the blessing of God. You're gonna know victory instead of defeat. You're gonna know God going before you in a way he didn't. Now watch this in Joshua chapter seven, verse one. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Verse 26, last verse of the chapter. So the Lord was no longer angry. And from that point on, you know what happens? Israel's army is never defeated. Think of that. 
That's the power of lining ourselves up with the Word of God. I mean, it takes us right back to Joshua chapter one. Now we're saying, God, what you say, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna obey it, I'm in, I'm on, I'm full in, and God says, so awesome to hear it because I just wanna unload my truck of blessing on your life. When we're right with God, listen, we open the door to victory in our life. We open the door to blessing in our life. If we want to live in the land of blessing, then the greatest thing we could do is to cultivate a heart of sensitivity to God that says, oh God, search me, know my heart, try me, see if there be something in my life that's displeasing to you and whatever it is, make me aware of it. God, I want to walk in a sensitivity to you so that if there is anything that it is displeasing to you or would distance me from you, God, put your finger on it. Make me aware of it. Show me I am committed. I am not perfect. You know that. But God, I am committed to turning from that. I'm committed. Help me, Lord, to honor you with all of my heart because I want to live as close as I possibly can to your heart, to your presence and under your blessing. This is what the psalmist said, Psalm 139, I close with this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. It's a good prayer for every Christian to pray. God, search my heart. I, I can't even know my own heart. The heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17, 9. Who can know it? You can't even at times know your own heart. That's why I need to have God tell me what my heart is. And that takes time in his presence. Lord, you know, you may think you're doing a good job. Lord, I'm doing a good, I think I'm doing a pretty good job, but I know better than to think that, that I know my heart. Or God, you know I'm not doing a very good job. And God says, well, you know, you're right. On that, you aren't. And over here, you could improve too. And that's a good thing. Why would we not want... Why would we not want to be as right with God as we can possibly be? Why would we not want to his help in putting his finger on things in our life that are keeping us from knowing the full extent of his blessing in our life? Why would we not want to let go of bitterness or let go of resentment or let go of envy or jealousy or anger or, or sensuality or gossip or lying or stealing? Why would we not want to let go of those things so that we could know the blessing of the Lord? Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Lead me to the land of blessing that I might not just visit it, but I might live there. Amen.